and welcome to the Airways Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3. I'm your host, Helwing Belmazar, Digital Editor at Airways, joined by Rohan Anand and Vinay Boscara. How are you guys doing tonight? For me, I have spent a lot of time out by the lake with my dog, which has been lovely. Uh, that's the one thing that's going really well in my life. The other thing that's not going well in my life is I can't get my printer to work. But champagne problems. How about you, Vinay? Can't get your printer to work. Um, I am back from a quick trip to London last week. I finally got to experience that Polaris Lounge a la carte dining, which I has escaped me so far. Thought it was pretty, pretty special. But then on my on my flight back, I ended up in seat eight, row 18 on the 767, which is the window seat without a window. Um, so that was less good. But yeah, I mm-hmm. had a quick fun trip to London and here we are. Wait, so did you fly Boston to Heathrow, Polaris? No, I flew Newark to Heathrow and then Heathrow to Newark. So I was in Polaris in both directions. Yeah. And how was the food on the flight? So truthfully, I was in the Polaris lounge for like seven hours um, on my outbound before my outbound because I was in the city with a friend and then I had an evening flight and a bunch of meetings in the afternoon. So... I ate in the Polaris Lounge, got on the plane, and immediately fell asleep. Did not eat lunch, did not eat breakfast, just managed some coffee right before landing in London. Yeah, um, that's such a, that's such a you know, toss-up in my mind, because I'm like, man, like you feel like you're paying for the food as well on that flight, and yet also you're paying for the sleep. How do you optimize it all, right, so that you you know, have the sleep you want, eat the food that you want, drink the booze that you want, um, all through the end to end, but I guess the only way to do that is, uh, you know, an ultra long haul flight so that you can kind of have enough time to enjoy all of them. You know, that's yeah. good. I mean, I think that's a smart strategy for those flying in Polaris is if you have the lounge, the Polaris lounge uh, at LAX, SFO, Chicago, Dulles, or Newark to dine there before your flight. Yeah, that's generally my move is I, I, I try to just sleep through a red eye, especially because London, Newark, London is a short flight. So if you try to stay up for dinner, by the time the dinner service finishes, you're you're left with like three and a half hours of sleep. So I'd rather yeah. get like a full six. Um, yeah, that was that was that was that, that, that first half was solid. The return flight food was. I'll describe it as better than. It was maybe a year ago, but still not good. Are they still that, serving everything on one tray in Polaris? They are are still serving everything on. Well, they they serve they serve your your app um, and your main on one tray, and then they'll give you a dessert afterwards. And I had the Sunday that was um, that was pretty special. But for the most part, they um, they they are still they're doing two courses basically. You get you get your main and your app on one tray and then you get your dessert um in a, from a separate cart hmm yeah so i think the last time that i flew polaris they gave us a cookie uh but this is in 2021 when i was flying to india um and the service was was quite reduced um i have some pretty uh embarrassing meals from or pictures of, of that trip and the the, the catering quality uh, not to harp too much on it, but I hope that it was better for you. Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. 
You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways Notam goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. Um, so I guess on to that, we can talk through some of our other topics for this week, beginning with the United Airlines uh, earnings discussion that we had from last episode and how we can continue to extend that towards the other U.S. airlines and their earnings from this quarter. So some of the highlights were that American Airlines uh, achieved a 15% operating margin for the quarter, um, higher than expectations uh, for this quarter. And then comparatively, United and Delta had earned about 17%. And then Southwest Airlines, uh, I'm trying to find that data, but basically the results weren't as impressive uh, to Wall Street on their earnings call. Uh, Spirit will announce tomorrow. It's estimated that they'll between, be between 4.5 and 6.5%, and JetBlue is at 9%. I believe Alaska was at 18%. And uh, bringing all of this data together as an operating margin comparison provides the best barometer to measure airline performance. Um, and actually, to add a couple more interesting data points to operating performance this year, I heard that the Q1 operating margins of Avello Airlines and Breeze Airways, the two new startups, were um, were flipped. They're flipped numbers. Uh, 17%, negative 17% operating margin for Avello and negative 71% for Breeze. Uh, oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of really interesting data in there. And I think, Vinay, it's, it's really important we dive into this because um, a lot of these are still connected to topics that we brought up in our previous podcast, uh, not just on the earnings performance, but also on the airlines and the data points that they're creating fresh out of the gate in the post-pandemic world. Because at the end of the day, air earnings results are just snapshots, right? They're, they're data points in time. And as we're moving forward into this world post-pandemic, with traffic patterns changing, with distribution changing, with uh, the consolidation efforts from Spirit and JetBlue that you know may not go through, or the NEA unwinding, there's different things that come into play every quarter. Um, so, Vinay, tell me a little bit more about your reactions to some of these results and how the entirety of Q2 operating performance uh, either surprised you or made you say ho-hum. Well, I think it was really interesting if you look at sort of the bifurcation of how investors reacted to earnings and how, I guess, the, the earnings were perceived at different carriers depending on the structure of their networks, right? Pre-pandemic, especially 2019, 2018, kind of that period, you tended to see that the domestic carriers had the strongest margins, right? They were the ones who were really benefiting from the booming economy pre-pandemic. Um, and then some of the global carriers were suffering from overcapacity, particularly from low-cost carriers across the, the Atlantic and then from the Chinese carriers across the Pacific. 2023 has been almost a reversal of that trend, right? Where you're seeing the carriers that have a global long-haul network post these record profits, record revenue figures, they're guiding really well for, for Q3. And then some of the more domestic-oriented carriers, Southwest, Alaska, JetBlue, Hawaiian's kind of a special case in its own bucket, 
But Alaska, um, Southwest, and JetBlue, they're all primarily domestic, obviously some short-haul international. And both their Q2 earnings, their Q3 guidance, and how investors reacted to all of that um, was a lot more negative, right? Yeah. For, even though the on-paper profit figures for those airlines was pretty good, like JetBlue had a, had a profit, um, uh, you know, I think I think it might have been a record profit or, or a highest post-pandemic kind of profit. Yeah, um, Southwest was profitable, Alaska was profitable, but the challenge that they're all facing is that they don't have those global networks that they can yeah. tap into because um, you're almost seeing the cyclical pattern, right? Where 2021 was the return of some demand after 2020. So you had like the first bit about a revenge travel. 22 was a lot of like return to full-throated, full-fledged domestic air travel. And you saw that, you know, air domestic air travel recovered a lot more than international in 2022. 2023 has really been the year of recovery for long-haul international flying. Um, and you're actually seeing a, a slowdown in demand on domestic routing because of that, because business travel hasn't caught up. So so overall demand patterns are really driven by how leisure travel and, and some of that like blended premium leisure or um, leisure travel even, right? Where, where you're you know working remotely. Um, yeah. How that evolves is really having an impact on earnings. Yes. Yeah. And just kind of going one by one with each of them, it's so fascinating to hear these comparative points being a universal uh, truth point to each of these individual carriers, barring Spirit, which hasn't had its call yet at the time of this recording. But, um, you know, United and Delta, their strong earnings were driven by long haul and international. And that's going to continue to give them a tailwind going into 2020 or sorry, Q2 or Q3 rather of 2023. Uh, American made a different sort of abrupt change where it was saying that its guidance for Q3 is being reversed down to between 8 to 10%, which is kind of nuts considering how Q3 includes July and August, which are very strong travel periods. Um, taking that into account, too, about how previously the seasonality of international travel would end around end of August or maybe after Labor Day, well, no. I mean, those reversals of trends from pre-pandemic means that even through the end of September, they can anticipate, and perhaps even going into um, the first month of Q4, you know, some very good, uh, you know, strong demand patterns into October for these international markets. Now, granted, American has less international exposure than United and Delta do, and then, of course, American has been relying upon the NEA previously with JetBlue Speed at a lot of its northeastern hubs to help support some of that long haul traffic uh, to some of these markets. And so with that absent, what is that going to be uh, indicative of? Uh, and we'll get to the NEA in a second because I think there's some more points to unpack there. But also speaking of which. Business travel was alluded to in the Southwest earnings about how they're having to slash some Tuesday flying uh, around 6%. They're slashing a lot of the corporate traffic that is, uh, you know, not returned as heavily as leisure. They've, they've cited San Francisco Burbank exiting that market and also pulling down a lot of intra-island Hawaiian flying as an example of the corporate traffic that's just down. Uh, and so they are going to be hopefully able to use those assets to fly to other, you know, markets across their network, but no one really knows, right? Because Southwest also mentioned that their operating costs have risen. I mean, these are the costs of contracts, the cost of, you know, expensive union contracts. 
And what Southwest is dealing with is that they're actually oftentimes doing, I heard this thing today called like a one step where they go to Southwest, they get type rated, and then they'll go to a competitor because then they can get type rated on a different aircraft from the 737. Not to mention the other facts being that United and American have been basing their own contract negotiations off of each other. Uh, and so then, you know, with, with those labor costs potentially coming in, you have that. And then you have Alaska over in the corner that's uh, also at that 18% operating margin, typically high. Alaska always seems to kind of post the stronger profit margins up there with Delta, uh, you know, just by being a very well-managed airline and kind of a niche airline. Uh, but the guidance was, you know, very negative for Alaska, like you mentioned. It was also very negative for JetBlue. Um, listening to Spirit will be very interesting tomorrow. And to take it all full circle, Vinay, I think we've talked about on this podcast that uh, airlines have been a lot less uh, explicit about traffic and revenue trend breakdowns and the proportions as they relate to geographies in their earnings calls since the pandemic. Um and for the rightful reasons, you know, they only have to tell you as much as they want to. Uh, curious to know what your thoughts are on all those data or those thoughts that I had. So, I mean, kind of go one by one. I think with Alaska, the thing that was really interesting is in the post-pandemic kind of period, right? Like, so starting in 21 and then 22 and 23, um, early part of 23, I think a lot of the focus has been on almost this question of recovery, right? Like, how do we get back to 2019? And so investors hadn't really been looking at capacity growth, which was a thing that they were laser focused on in that pre-pandemic period, right? But they hadn't looked that hard at capacity growth. Or or when when airlines talked about capacity growth, they were almost talking about, oh, here's how we're recovering back to our 2019. Here's kind of how demand is is looking. I think with Alaska's call, you saw almost a reversion to the pre-pandemic um, behavior where a, a lot of the analyst focus was on Alaska simultaneously flagging, hey, we have weaker demand. We're seeing demand start to slow down. We're seeing fare start to slow down. And we're you know committed to our plans to grow capacity by 8, 9, 10%, whatever the number is, depending on the quarter. And so I think there's a really interesting dynamic there where you're, you're almost seeing a true return to normal. Um, with with Alaska and with some of those carriers, I think with some of the legacy carriers, you're still seeing a, a brave new world in some ways. Right. And I want to return to American and JetBlue and hone in on the NEA specifically, and that can segue nicely into, our, I think, a topic you want to get into. But, um, you know, bringing the NEA into this conversation, given the fact that we went through an analysis of the NEA on our initial episode of season two, the NEA has been singled out by American as a, like, not a huge deal situation anymore. And I wonder how much do you believe that the impact of the NEA going away with American, in spite of its appeal factor, how much is that going to influence Americans' guidance, as I mentioned, or... How How is that sort of in line with maybe some of the negativity from Wall Street going into the second half of the year? Yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, I think we, we touched on this in our first episode when we returned. We talked about American not having enough wide body capacity. Right. And that's prevented it from profiting from this resumption of demand for long haul international travel 
the same way that United has or even Delta has, right? So I think a lot of the negativity is not even necessarily in an absolute sense. Like American is profitable. It's got profitable hubs in, you know, in Phoenix and DFW and Charlotte that are growth markets, truthfully, in the kind of post-pandemic geographic shift. But it doesn't have the ability to capitalize on that long-haul international demand. And that's a first-order problem in terms of just filling its planes now. It's also a second-order problem when you think about um, frequent flyer miles and growing its portfolio of cardholders um, and eventually recapturing business traffic down the line. I think when it comes to the NEA, right, the, the gap between how American is talking about it and how JetBlue is talking about it, it, it's a math problem, right? Like American is a very big airline and New York and Boston are a very small part of what American does. Now, some might argue that that's a strategic mistake in and of itself, but ultimately they're five, 10 percentage points of capacity. It's high margin stuff, but, and it's important from a strategic perspective, from uh, historically from a frequent flyer contract perspective, though Americans kind of walking away from that a little bit. So for American, New York and Boston are important, but a small part of what they do. For JetBlue, New York and Boston are the airline, right? They've, they've obviously got, you know, they've got Fort Lauderdale, they've got some Orlando stuff, they've got some uh, hilariously unprofitable Newark and Los Angeles flying, but for really, it's, it's, it's JFK, it's LaGuardia, it's Boston. That is the, that is the beating heart of JetBlue. And so the removal of the NEA is a very material impact to JetBlue in a way that it's not to American. Yeah. I have a question. Did they finally, did they agreed to vacate 10% of the slots in those airports, right? But they did. They never did. I don't know. So there's a, there's a separate thing happening with the FAA. Okay. Not to continuously go back to the future here, but there's a separate thing happening with, with the FAA where they're asking all the airlines to pull back on some of their flying um, in the New York City area. And that's across Newark, JFK, EWR, sorry, uh, LaGuardia. So that's happening kind of independent. Separately, part of the NEA was American giving JetBlue a bunch of slots over at LaGuardia. I think it might have been like 35, 36 slot pairs. And the unwinding of that has been pretty slow, in part because I think after the NEA ruling, there were some clarifications that said that the part that we found illegal was like the fair coordination and the revenue coordination. You can still code share and you can still like share slots. Um, and I think right. they, like, you know, I think that Jet, the, the game that JetBlue is trying to play, which, you know, given the hand that they've been dealt, I think is reasonable, it, is they're going to let American take the lead on appealing the NEA. And I think that unless you get a flip of administrations next year, that probably is going to fail. And the reason they're doing that is like they'd love for the NEA to come back, but they can't control that. And they've got to put all their eggs into the spirit murder basket. Which, realistically, given how the FTC is operating today, I don't see how that gets approved either. Also, what is JetBlue doing? Like, what is JetBlue doing? You mentioned flying unprofitable New York to LAX routes, right? Like, they have arguably the best transcontinental product, right? And Mint, you have over here, and going into Amsterdam and Paris and London, that's over there. And then you have them also going after a spirit. I mean, like the the disconnect, I think. So between- I think the right way to view the spirit um, acquisition is it, it's an asset acquisition, right? Yes, that I understand. It's about the planes. It's about the delivery slots for additional planes. JetBlue cannot get enough planes. And I think fundamentally that has 
hampered it in this evolution it's undergoing where it's trying to you know make the jump from sort of LCC to LCC hybrid to effectively Alaska style full service niche carrier. Yeah. I think that the 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 question at this point for JetBlue is the current model is like the worst of both worlds, right? They've got, you know, near legacy costs without the kind of route network and partnership structure to be able to justify um, near legacy fares and near legacy revenues, right? Yeah. I, I think that, like, in practice, JetBlue has, like, two options here, right? Option number one is they've got an incredibly valuable portfolio of slots and gates at some very premium airports. So one option that JetBlue could go do is they could do what Spirit did. So people don't maybe don't know this history, but Spirit was originally a semi-JetBlue-style operation, right? They they were a kind of premium leisure carrier. Um, they had a big base in Detroit, right? Um, back in the NWA, the Northwest Airlines in days. Beach. Right, Myrtle Beach. They had, they had some, and the reason they have the big front seats is because those are actually the the sort of remains of the old Spirit Airlines first class product. Okay, so Spirit Airlines used to be a carrier that had a first class product, like Sun Country. Uh, Absolutely. And so there is an option for JetBlue, which is you go bare bones, you sort of double down on growth, you throw another thirty seats into your A320 and another fifty seats into your A321s, and you become a ULCC, you, you pivot to ULCC, you lean on the fact that you've got these really, really strong, um, you know, uh, asset portfolios, gate portfolios, slot portfolios, and you basically, you know, maybe you keep some touches like the, the direct TV and a couple other pieces, but for the most part, you, you can pivot to ULCC. And what about if you? your goal was to be protective of capital and drive decent margins, you merge with Spirit and you become a big ULCC. I don't think JetBlue wants to do that. So the other option is you double down and you become a thir- a fourth legacy carrier. And arguably there's space in the US for a fourth legacy carrier, right? The three legacies have um, sort of ol- oligopolized in some ways the full service carrier space. So there's room for it. Now, I don't think it will be very profitable or you'll have to stomach a lot of years of losing money before this or, or, or delivering subpar margins depending on the, the conditions around them. But there there's an argument for it. I think the biggest limitation is the fact that like the hubs that make sense for a network carrier by and large either already exist, right? Like are are already dominated by a big three US carrier, right? Or they have a huge Southwest Airlines presence that is difficult to dislodge. And so that's the tricky trade-off, right? Like you you know, if you want to play fantasy games, right, you could say, like, okay, well, uh, JetBlue's already got the really strong presence up and down the eastern seaboard. Maybe you, you know, you add a hub operation somewhere like Nashville. You add a hub operation somewhere like Austin. Maybe you sort of go into some of the vacated space in a place like um, Pittsburgh, or um, or you or you you know capitalize on the fact that American is really pulling back in Chicago, and you go all in on Chicago. The problem is you're going to lose hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars doing this for right. years on end. Till you build enough of a presence to to, to make it work, yeah. It's the it, it, as you mentioned the oligopoly. It's it's the effect of uh, you know like capitalism and consolidation with regards to what Spirit. Air, I mean, can you imagine that twenty years ago Spirit Airlines also existed alongside National and America West and 
Sun Country and so many other airlines. Now it's a different story. It's a completely different landscape where so many U.S. domestic airlines have been eliminated or have been acquired or are no longer around. So I think that that um, conclusion to you, I guess, would be, what do you think is happening at JetBlue? JetBlue is doomed. Um, what, I, what I think is, is that JetBlue is undergoing the identity crisis that all sort of like low-cost carriers tend to undergo, right? Which is that once they mature and once they no longer have a cost advantage, you either have to grow your way out of the problem or you have to, um, you know, become more premium. And I just, I don't know that there, the, the problem is that there's so much low-cost carrier DNA because of the history of the carrier and how they got here that I don't think they can lean fully into becoming a premium carrier, N- nor, to be fair, do they have the assets or planes to do that anyway. Um, I did read an interesting article from um, Ben Schlappig over at One Mile at a Time, and he asked the question, should JetBlue out of first class? And I, I think it kind of makes sense given their cost base, to be honest, and given the route structure, right? Like, you're in Boston, you're in New York, at a first class cabin. Um, you've got a, a product that people really love in the economy class space. You've got, you know, a, a decent extra legroom product at 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 a first class cabin. Maybe you can start to generate more of a revenue premium from your own travelers. Maybe you can start to generate a revenue premium from some of the connecting business you do with international carriers in and out of New York. There's a lot of carriers that fly into JFK. You don't even have to necessarily add a shit a ton of stuff on your own metal. You can, you know, it, but if you have that premium cabin connection, all of a sudden you unlock a lot of one-stop routings for like a Turkish Airlines or, um, uh, you know, an Aer Lingus who they've partnered with for years before they became part of the IAG um, mega brand. So, absolutely. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com slash shop, where you'll be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. That's airwaysmag.com slash shop. Well, I think that's a nice little wrap on the Q2 earnings results. We'll definitely cover Q3 when we have... So the one I actually do want to dip back into a little bit is is just Hawaiian. And I'm actually curious. I have a question for you. Um, The same question that I I asked about JetBlue, um, you asked me about JetBlue, rather. I'll, I'll throw it right back to you. What should Hawaiian do? Because I feel like they've just been getting pummeled in every direction, international, um, domestic, inter-island with the Southwest Airlines competition. Do you have a point of view on what Hawaiian is doing wrong, if anything, and what they should be doing in response? Not really. I mean, they've always kind of done their own thing. They've always been in their own little lane. I mean, Hawaii's just, it's connected, but it's not connected to the contiguous U.S. It just, it's a niche market. Uh, and Hawaiian's not part of any alliance. It's been, I guess, you know, using some of its A330s to fly to these destinations in Asia Pacific. But I mean, it has 787s on order. And I mean, if United is able to go, you know, pretty hardcore into Australia, what's, you know, stopping Hawaiian from doing the same? I don't really know. Um, Hawaiian is an airline that I pay attention to uh, and I root for. 
Uh, but from a financial performance perspective, I feel like it just has its outlier elements. And so when it kind of gets subjected to the same Wall Street scrutiny that the others do, I feel like it's kind of got its own means of dealing with that. And it's kind of been that way forever. Um, that said, I don't know, maybe there has been an opportunity for them to really come back, you know, hardcore since pandemic and it's not happened. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think the structural conditions around Hawaiian have been really, really tough post pandemic, right? Um, they lost money in, in the second quarter. They're going to lose money in 2023, which is really hard to do in the U.S. airline industry. But Hawaiian's going to Hawaiian's going to do it along with their good buddies, Avello and and Breeze, um, at least according to, to some of your insider numbers there. Um, but I think the, the thing that's interesting about Hawaiian is they're very anachronistic, right? They're very they're a small sort of niche airline um but that simultaneously flies a bunch of wide bodies, right? Like, like you know, there's Sun Country, right? But Sun Country is a small 737 carrier that is laser focused on Minneapolis, some charter business, um, and like flying sports teams around, right? Hawaiian is arguably it it has the fourth biggest global network of any U.S. carrier, right? Like they fly to a bunch to a bunch of of states or or, or airports across Asia, across Australia, across the South Pacific. Um, and I think the thing that's really interesting and, and a piece that we haven't dug into yet is, you know, you look at some of the issues that Pratt has been having with its A320 engines, right? Or A321 engines. Um, the GTF, you know, when it was first launched was kind of a revelation, right? It was like, it was the the new generation engine, right? And, and arguably it is the reason that the A320 Neo family, it were one of the contributing factors for why the A320 Neo family has so far outstripped the 737 Max. So it was the extra, you know, performance that you get with the geared turbofan with the GTF, and how that translated to a complete shift in low-cost carrier demand for for the A320 Neo. Right? If you look at where the A320 Neo has really jumped past the 737 Max, on the legacy business, it's been a little bit more 50-50. On the ULCC space it's been like 70 30 or 80 20 i think the gtf's a big role in that interestingly now you're seeing the other side of that where because of some of the the engines that the 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 issues that pratt has had with the gtf um lots and lots of aircraft are having to be pulled out of of service for some of these ulccs it was a arguably a non non-trivial factor in why go first fell apart the way that it did in india earlier this year um and i think it'll be interesting to see where hawaiian um, is finally seeing some good demand patterns, but it's also going to start to run into some aircraft issues. So, yep. So I think we can move on to our next topic, which is was Air expanding fleet with seventy five additional A three twenty one Neo aircraft. Uh, well, they announced the firm order today, uh, August 2nd, and uh, it would bring a uh, total number A321 Neo uh, on order to 434, making it the largest operator of the type in Europe and the Middle East. I'm not sure. Yeah. Wizair is really interesting because I think they are very underrated in terms of their success as a carrier in the European market. They have been very profitable since the beginning of their inception. They've also created quite an operation out of Eastern Europe and kind of capitalized on some of the resurgence in Eastern Europe 
in the wake of flag carriers like Malev, for example, uh, failing in 2012 out of like Hungary, they've stuck to an ultra low cost carrier model, which has allowed them to expand into other parts of the European Union. And then on top of that, they also are owned by Indigo Partners, uh, who is essentially the uh, owner and has stakes in Frontier, in JetSmart in Chile, and Volaris uh, in Mexico. And so kind of sticking to that purest low-cost carrier model has bode very well for them. Uh, it's very interesting to compare this topic to our previous one with Spirit, for example, and have Spirit as, you know, now become the target of an acquisition from a JetBlue, which came from the original David Nieleman, uh, and how hybridization and, and sort of evolution of low-cost carriers can go in certain directions. And here we have Wizz Air that's been very successful. Now, of course, Wizz Air is now expanding into the UAE and formulating co-chair agreements with Etihad, I believe, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, but also, it just kind of comes to accentuate how the Airbus A321 is a very successful aircraft. It's going to have um, a lot of versatility among many different uh, operators, uh, as well as good compatibility with the Air Airbus A320 um, CEO family. Yeah, I mean, I think Wizz Air is really interesting because if you look at European low-cost carriers, right, I would say that um, Ryanair and EasyJet tend to soak up a lot of the press. They are the, the biggest low-cost carriers um, in, in Western Europe. But Wizz Air very quietly is is a huge airline in its own right. Like, I, I, I think people don't just grok how big Wizz Air is, right? It's got close to 200 planes in the main carrier along with uh, a bunch more um, ac across its, its subsidiaries, right? And it's a lot of A321s, right? They're the largest operator of A321neos, I think like you mentioned. Um, they've got 292 additional ones on order plus 47 XLRs. They're they're very quietly and, and and they've done some interesting things too, right? They've they've built a base in 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 London Gatwick and London Luton, which you might not have thought given their origins in Eastern Europe. They've built a base in Abu Dhabi that's been really interesting and and helped kind of um, buffet growth in Abu Dhabi when given some of the challenges that Etihad has had over the past few years. Um, Wizz Air is probably the least talked about large airline in the world. I feel comfortable kind of making that that statement. Um, and it's it's really fascinating because part of what they've benefited from, at least in Eastern Europe, is that a lot of the traditional Eastern European flag carriers and, um, you know, airlines like Malev, um, even Lot, uh, Lot, Polish Airlines to some extent, have, um, you know, struggled, right, in the, in the post sort of EU, post liberalization era. And so they've really stepped in and, and kind of filled that void along with, alongside Ryanair and alongside um, EasyJet. Wizz Air to switch all Luton-based aircraft to Airbus A321. Makes sense. That's a great airplane. Well, I think, you know, L London is, is really interesting because um, London, uh, Luton and Stansted definitely have some more space for expansion, right? They're, they're not... Um, they're not as capacity constrained as Heathrow, obviously, or even Gatwick, which are both slot restricted. Um, right. And but but even so, I think you know London just has 
more or less limited, limitless demand rather, um, when it comes to sort of low cost travel um, uh, with, with, within Europe, right? Um, both in terms of people visiting London, tourists and, and, and visiting family and relatives and, um, you know, in the other direction when it comes to, um, you know, uh, UK folks traveling outbound for holidays. I think the one interesting dynamic to mention with um, Wizz Air in London specifically is that, you know, Ryanair and um, EasyJet and obviously British Airways and some of the like European charter carriers, they do a, a really good business serving UK, you know, England, English citizens, serving UK residents. But the really interesting dynamic with with Wizz Air is that across the last 15, 20 years, there's been a huge surge of population. Now, uh, admittedly, that has changed to some extent after Brexit, but there was a huge surge of population of folks from Poland, from Ukraine, from Eastern Europe. Um, and so there's a heavy visiting family and relatives traffic segment that they're also serving into and out of London that I think is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I think the other question that I'm that I'm wondering about with with Wizz Air that I think is is really worth thinking through is to what extent does the future of Wizz Air look like what it's doing from Abu Dhabi, right? Where it's going to start to operate? Is it going to go more eastbound, or is it going to go try to go more into Western Europe into the traditional strongholds of EasyJet and of um, of Ryanair? Because I think that's a really interesting question, right? Wizz Air is operating in Abu Dhabi. It's doing stuff in, in Saudi Arabia through Saudi Arabia's broader um, goals around promoting tourism. And I wonder to what extent are they going to push more into Eastern Europe, Central Asia, the Middle East, versus to what extent do they want to duke it out in Western Europe? Obviously, East, Eastern Europe is going to continue to be a, a really core um, piece of their of their network. Right. I wonder how much stimulation still exists and. Abu Dhabi and maybe even in the UAE for ultra low cost carriers. I mean, there's definitely models and examples of low cost carriers in the Middle East and in North Africa. Uh, what more room is there for that? And could Wizz Air play a role in that? Um, I certainly don't believe that Etihad Airways Partners uh, is in existence anymore. So that wouldn't be an option for them. And I don't think it would fit their model either. Um, but I think that in Abu Dhabi, at least, you know, there's certainly space for it. I think that the Abu Dhabi airport is the one airport experience that I have not been through in the Middle East. I've been through Doha, I've been through Dubai, I've been through Istanbul, both old and new. But Abu Dhabi still remains as one where I don't have that experience. Um, so I think the really interesting one that I'll be keeping an eye on is... Do they do anything in Dubai? And is there an opportunity specifically with the new-ish, well, I guess it's it's hard to call an airport that's, you know, 10 plus years old at this point new, but the the um, Jebel Ali Airport, the Al Maktoum International Airport. And I think the really interesting thing to look at there, right, is if you look at Dubai International, right, it's slot constrained, it's capacity constrained, and... Um, in theory, you have Fly Dubai as a sort of, you know, low cost, quote unquote, option. But Fly Dubai is a very, very different kind of carrier, right? They have flatbeds in 737 Maxes. That is not a traditional LCC. They're honestly more of a um, sort of uh, mid-market kind of airline. And so I think given just the raw volume of demand um, into and out of Dubai, across the Middle East, across Europe, across North Africa, across the Muslim world, frankly... Um, and I'm including sort of like the southern states of India as, as kind of a piece of that. 
I think that there's a interesting, very interesting opportunity for someone to build an LCC, a, a ULCC model in Dubai. And the problem is you can't do it at Dubai International because of capacity constraints. But can you take up some of that infrastructure in um, Al Maktoum Airport and and build out a ULCC operation? There, there's there, there's definitely demand for it. The question really becomes: Will you know the the Dubai Emirati government sign off on it? I think because I think obviously they do a lot of work to protect Emirates and to protect Fly Dubai. So that is really the interesting question there. Definitely. Have you guys flown with Air? No, not yet. No, I'm not really a ULCC guy to be honest. Like I've I've flown some Ryanair in right. the past. Um, I've done Spirit because at one point they just had the best nonstop schedule between Boston and and FLL. Um, you're, a, you're a Polaris passenger. That's right. I forgot about that. Wow. Wait, wait, wait to use Polaris as a slur, man. That's, that's, that's <laughs> kind. Um, I mean, I will say I, I've, I've flown more of the ULC season in East Asia. Like I've done um, Indigo a lot within India just because you, you can't fly anyone else to some extent. Um, I've done Air Asia and I've loved Air Asia, right? Now, I think part of that is I think right. food is a lot better. Uh, on the East Asian carriers, like they have, they have proper meals, and I don't mind paying for a meal if it's if it comes down to it. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've done I've done Scoot, I've done Knock Scoot um, back when that existed. I've done a lot of ULCCs over in East in East Asia, um, and I find that to be a little bit of a better experience. Yeah. Have you flown with you, Elwing? No, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for like budget, budget. Easy jet, I think. Oh, when it came out. <laughs> I mean, my honest answer when it comes to budget is like Aeroplan or United Miles to fly on Lufthansa <laughs> or someone. You know, within within Europe, it's it's not that bad. Like like you know, seventy five hundred miles. If I do the conversion to how they value it from PQ, it's like seventy five bucks, right? Like uh, that is cheap. And obviously, seventy five hundred is hard to find these days. But even fifteen k United Miles, like. My, you know, work travel throws off enough United miles that I'm, I'm never lacking for them. So that, that's usually what I, what I default to. Um, okay, let's go to our next uh, topic, which is Etihad Airways, which announced the start of a new flight between Abu Dhabi and Boston for March 2024. The servers will run four times a week, Sundays, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. Um, yeah. It's a 13 hour flight and uh, they will use the Boeing 787-9. Yeah, starting movie, it's called How Etihad Got Its Groove Back. Uh, no, it's it's been interesting. I've written a lot about Etihad over the last decade, specifically over its, uh, its historical transformation from being an airline that wanted to be resuscitating the hunter strategy model, which if you know what the hunter strategy is about, it was the failed McKinsey uh, bailout plan for Swiss Air in the early 2000s. And at the odds model was similar by equity stakes on a bunch of failing national airlines. And then as Vinay once upon a time said, throw good money after bad, like, you know, Air Berlin and Jet Airways and Alitalia, uh, the list goes on. And Etihad uh, had this uh, leadership kind of under James Hogan, who then stepped down in 2018, and then Tony Douglas took over. And I think that the strategy was then oriented around shrinking their way to profitability. 
now they have a new CEO, and I believe that their name is Anton Naldo Neves. Uh, but basically, they are or they are goal oriented around doubling their fleet to 150 aircraft and tripling their passenger numbers. Uh, so back on that growth plan, except this time without the uh, equity stakes in some of these uh, other airlines around the world. And so Etihad once upon a time had flights to Sao Paulo, they had flights to Dallas, to San Francisco, to LA. Those had all been cut. Now they're back in a growth place, but after I would say five years of no growth, uh, excluding Toronto where they just happened to be able to get more landing rights uh, but, you know, they brought back the A380s. Uh, the A380s may make their way back to New York. Uh, you know, the network may continue to expand. They may consider an alliance. I don't know. Uh, Vinay, what were your thoughts? Because this was a surprising one. I didn't expect this to happen. Well, I mean, it seems like Etihad is hell-bent on growing its way back into loss-making. Um, so good for them. I think part of what you're seeing is that the competitive environment around Etihad has really changed, right? Shrinking your way to profitability makes some degree of sense when, you know, you're dealing with just Emirates and Qatar. But you now have the new Saudi startup Riyadh Air that is trying to build another version of, you know, the the ME3. You have a somewhat resurgent Air India. We'll see how long that lasts, but you have a very resurgent Air India, at least in terms of aircraft order volume, that is trying to make yeah. Delhi into a, a, a crazy hub. You have Turkish airlines unconstrained by Istanbul airport capacity. A, a, a big missing factor in the analysis of what happened in the Middle East between you know that 2010 to 2020 kind of period is that for a large chunk of that, Turkish Airlines was limited by its ability to grow at the old Ataturk airport. And yeah. truthfully, even relative to Dubai, Istanbul has the richest origin and destination markets in the Middle East. Like that is the best O&D market in the Middle East. Obviously, Dubai has become and grown its way into that to some extent. But Turkish Airlines has huge you know, VFR demand. It has huge O&D demand. It has huge tourism demand in a way that some of these other cities do not. And now with the new Istanbul Ataturk Airport, which I flew through last year, they're unconstrained by, you know, the, the only limit to their growth is imagination and the ability to um, acquire aircraft. And unlike Etihad, they, they are profitable and have been pretty consistently profitable. And so I just think the competitive environment around Etihad is different. And Etihad kind of has to decide, does it want to be Gulf Air or, you know, Oman Air, or does it want to be... Uh, you know, an ME3 carrier. And I guess they decided that they'd like to set some dollars on fire or sorry, some Durham's on fire and, um, you know, grow again. And that that's fine. And they've got an awesome product and I will look forward to, to flying them uh, when I get a chance to. They're they're a great airline. And, 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 you know, when you are a carrier in Abu Dhabi or in Dubai, you don't necessarily have to make money, right? Because you're adding, you're doing other things for the country in terms of bringing tourists in, in terms of carrying that nation's flag. Um, and, you know, they've got, they've got the oil and natural gas money to kind of back that up and, and to fund the loss making. The thing that was always more surprising to me is why they ever shrunk in the first place, right? No one was ever under any illusions that Etihad was this like massive, you know, laser focused on profitability kind of operation in the first place. Why did they stop was all, honestly the question that I always had in the back of my head. 
but it's it's good to see them re-add Boston. Um, yeah, I'm really glad they they managed to to do that. Or I, I mean, did they actually? Maybe, maybe they never operated Boston. It's good to see them add Boston. Um, and yeah, I especially appreciate the timing of them adding it right after I'm out of Boston after living there for nine years. But yeah, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, W. I mean, that was the one that I loved. No, I agree. The interesting thing about Etihad too is that with its equity stakes in these various airlines, it, it kind of tried to create this radial alliance model, uh, but that didn't work for it. Um, it didn't work for it because it doesn't work usually ever to buy state-owned carriers that are failing on their own uh, and try to use those as means by which you can extend market share, uh, even if they bought them for cheap. And I understand how Jet Airways may have been able to allow it greater access into India, but a lot of that feed was coming through on very costly aircraft that it was flying long haul, such as 777-200LRs, Airbus A340-600s. And so then, yeah, it shrank when it basically had to get rid of some of those 777s. And then its long haul fleet became more or less all about the 787-9. Now they brought the E380 back in. They've kind of fixed up their product to make it a little bit better after having kind of skinned down the product and getting rid of some of those glitzy little things that, you know, uh, is is a known trade in the Middle East. Everything you said about Turkish and about RIA and about Air India, I mean, for Etihad, as you mentioned, the choice is, do you go that way of Gulf Air or Mon Air where you're just a small region or airline? Or do you, you know, want to continue to capitalize on the never-ending popularity of the Middle East and, and the Gulf states in particular. They're never going to go out of style. They're never going to go out of fashion. Uh, Turkish has a very unique advantage in its geography. It's by far closer to some of these very niche uh, destinations in the Central Asia region and North African region and even doesn't provide too much backtracking for traffic that's going from, say, North and South America over to Europe and you know doesn't mind going through Istanbul, like that third uh, transit uh, type of cheap traffic, I would say, um, along with the OND, as you mentioned. So at the odd, above all, I think the interesting question for it will be, how are its thoughts towards an alliance membership? Because the narrative around airline alliances and the Gulf, cha- the Gulf carriers have changed. Um, you know, it's funny how five years ago, six years ago, it was all about the the ME3 plus Turkish are bad and, you know, they take away jobs from U.S. airlines. Now you got American flying into Doha, you know, to connect onto Qatar Airways and uh, an extensive partnership there. What will Etihad do? Will it find value in that? Yeah, well, I think the thing that's really interesting, right, is, um, you know, two things I want to hit on. So first, if you look at how the U.S. carriers have, st- have reversed their tune on the ME3 a little bit, um, in part, I think, because of what's happened with India and access to India and some of those markets with the Russian airspace situation, United and Emirates are our friends, right? American and Qatar Airways work really closely together, but you don't have that same level of flexibility from Delta, right? Like Delta is still of the U.S. carriers, the one that's most likely to be unhappy with the ME3 and and kind of keep them at arm's length. I think that's the first piece that's really interesting, right? Is like the natural reaction would be, okay, well, if, you know, Qatar is paired up with American and if uh, Emirates is paired up with United, well, let's go talk to Delta. But Delta doesn't really want anything to do 
with um, a Middle East carrier. They've got their own theory of the world and their own theory of alliances, um, which ironically enough, they're also kind of doing the hunter, the sort of equity and alliance strategy. They're just, you know, executing it well because they're run as a business competently, right? Um, the thing that's interesting about Etihad is just the just the gap in scale between them and some of the other Middle East carriers. Well, while you were while you were kind of going through that, I was just quickly looking up some of the stats here, right? So, um, Etihad at Abu Dhabi is about ninety five daily departures, right? And it's a mixture of some wide body flights and some narrow body flights, right? So that, that that's a decent that's a decently sized hub, right? That's you know about on par with like a Malaysia Airlines in Kuala Lumpur or a um, you know, Thai Airways in Bangkok. It's it's a it's a non-trivial hub. Okay, well, let's look at some comparison data points. Qatar Airways in Doha is about 270 daily departures. Right, similar mix of and probably more wide body departures. Literally three times the size. Three times the size. Emirates is 222, all on wide bodies, and then you add in 150-ish from fly, from Fly Dubai. It's about 370 daily departures. Okay. Turkish Airlines, again, a mix of, of wide body and narrow body. They've probably got more narrow body in that mix. They're at 555 daily departures um, from Istanbul. And that, that's for August 7th, which is what, I think a Saturday, a Sunday, what, whatever day it is, right? So it, it's just, it's it's an order of magnitude smaller than its competitors. So on some level, if it wants to stay even semi-competitive, it kind of does have to grow. Yeah. Right. Do you think that Etihad is going to add more U.S. destinations or Canada? Or? It has four, right? In the U.S. Yeah, Washington. Uh, Chicago. Chicago, right. New York. And now Boston. Dallas, maybe? Yeah, I mean, Dallas now has Turkish, two daily on Qatar, and Emirates still. Um, you know, I think that uh, like I mentioned, they previously served Sao Paulo. They previously served SFO. They previously served was in Los Angeles, Miami, Houston, DFW. And then I think on the cargo side, they served Anchorage at one point. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm just look, I'm looking this up on Wikipedia. So, you know, I don't think they have Houston or Miami, but at the high, maybe with car, maybe with cargo. That, that might mm-hmm. be cargo. At the uh, cargo, Miami for sure. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Etihad also used at least Jet Airways triple seven three hundred ER to fly from Abu Dhabi to SFO, um, with the intention of capturing some of that tech traffic that might, you know, pay first class for Jet Airways. Um, I can't remember. If it, I think it was a wet lease agreement, and now we see Etihad is doing the same thing for Air India. They've given them, uh, they're leasing three triple sevens for Etihad to use or for Air India to use, rather, um, which is five of the former Delta 777-200LRs. Um, um, it, that's what Air India already has. Uh, three 777-300ERs from Singapore Airlines, and now the, the ones coming from Etihad will be 777-300ERs. So maybe even more interesting question will be, at the clip at Rich, you know, Turkish Airlines is, you know, announcing flights to places in the Americas and growing in Latin America. I mean, heck, they're flying now, I think, more than double daily into Panama and to Havana and, and to Caracas. Um, it's, you know, going to be interesting to see where Air India is going uh, in the in the North American region. I'll bet, you know, Air India definitely wants to try to fly to Texas and to 
Uh, I was going to put money on the fact that Air India is probably not planning to fly to Caracas anytime soon. Um, as a complete sidebar, I just went on, uh, like, as you, as, you, as you were just walking through that, I went on a hilarious... Have you ever, have, did you ever go on Wikipedia and you go on one of those, like, I'm going to click on this link, and then I'm going to click on this link, and then I end up yes. here. So, the rabbit for some reason... Yeah, rabbit hole is, is the word for it. So for some reason, I guess Huntsville at one point was a cargo destination for Etihad. Um, and like, I know a lot about US aviation, but I did not process that Huntsville apparently has like a ton of crazy cargo routings. Like again, Wikipedia, so your mileage may vary with accuracy, but apparently they've got Atlas Air to Hong Kong and Luxembourg. They've got Cargo Lux to Luxembourg. They've got Latam Brazil to Campinas. Um, something called... Penalpina to Stansted in Luxembourg. Um, so, so first that 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 was that just blew my mind here. Like I don't know as much about cargo networks as I do about passenger networks, but that actually blew my mind. Um, yeah. And second, I just want to call out maybe the funniest sentence that I've ever read, which is Huntsville International Airport is served by six passenger airlines representing the three international airline alliances, which is just about the funniest way I've ever heard someone describe American Eagle service to Chicago O'Hare and Dallas Fort Worth. Delta connection service to Detroit, like a, a flight a day, and United Express. That is hey, maybe the funniest thing I've read all week. Yeah, I mean Huntsville sees itself as important. Um, and speaking of important, why do you think that at the odd chose Boston? What is it about Boston? Boston has been pretty hot. I mean, you know, a lot of airlines have added service to Boston um, over the last ten years. I mean, they've they've been able to get. The likes of Korea and, and Cathay Pacific and Turkish and many others, Chinese airlines. Um, what what is it about Boston that is just makes it so hot? Yeah, well, I think it's well, a couple of things. Oh, go ahead, Helen. No, no, oh, no, just saying that. Like uh, what uh, one lot of times they say that Etihad uh, emphasizes the number of Emiratis who have studied in Boston, so. I don't know, or that they have uh, investments in Boston, like in healthcare and education sector. And I don't know how much of it is about the healthcare education sector. I think there's really three contributors. First, it's the shortest stage length you can fly from Abu Dhabi to the U.S., more or less, right? Um, so, uh, you know, it is a cheaper flight to operate than, say, resuming service to DFW or going certainly to like LAX or SFO. I think the second piece is that... To, to the point Helling just made, the university students, right? Boston is a huge university destination, international university demand. Uh, you know, international students coming to the U.S. to study is a growth market that is sort of booming in a lot of non-traditional markets these days. So that's a yeah. second piece, right? And a lot of those are going to be good connection, connecting opportunities, good way to fill up the back of the bus. And honestly, some in some cases, business class, because some of those international students that come to the U.S. are from very wealthy families. Um, I think the third piece... Um, is you actually called it out, Rohan, and when you were kind of preambling that, the Chinese carriers, right? So so Boston has a lot of demand to deep Asia, Southeast Asia, places like that, but it didn't historically have as many business ties. And that's why, it, and it was, it's a long stage length to East Asia. In sort of the pre-pandemic era, you saw that Chinese carriers add a lot of capacity. You had Hainan, you had um, a couple others that I'm, that I'm not remembering, but you, ha- you had some substantial international service um, from the Chinese carriers. And I think because they're still restricted from being able to serve, there are traffic flows, particularly to places like Southeast Asia, to Taipei. To, uh, I guess Cathay is back from to, to Hong Kong, but 
some of some of those regions, I think there's a um, there's a lot of un, unserved demand as well. So I think those are probably the three big factors. Um, the university students is the biggest one. I don't know how much I believe the business ties. Like you know, I lived again nine years in Boston. I, I could count on a single hand the number of Emirati-oriented businesses that I saw in my time there. But that's neither here nor there. Right. And is that the, are those the same reasons Emirates and and Qatar fly to Boston Lowland as well? Uh, yeah, just different. As a pretty much the exact same drivers, right? Um, international students. Also, Emirates. Remember, Emirates and Qatar have bigger Indian networks, and there's obviously a big Indian population right. um, in Boston, both students and um, expats. The thing that's interesting to me about Boston is it's it's really kind of interesting in that Boston is Boston was arguably underserved in 2010, both for domestic travel and for international travel relative to the raw volume of demand that it had. Because, you know, Boston's history has kind of been one where it's sort of split between the legacy carriers. You never really had a ULCC established. Southwestern was, was famously not in Boston for years and years, right? And now in 2023, you could make an argument that Boston is overserved, right? They've got uh, a Delta Airlines hub or hublet that has tons and tons of transatlantic uh, flying and a lot of domestic flying that's probably not that profitable. You've got JetBlue duking it out with them. It's, it's JetBlue's second most important hub. And then you've got a ton of intercontinental carriers, right? Obviously, some of the Europe stuff has a long history. Air Lingus, Air France, Lufthansa, British Airways. But then you have Cathay Pacific nonstop to Hong Kong. You've got Copa to, to Panama City. Um, but I would imagine that that serves a lot of Brazilian traffic. You've got El Al to Tel Aviv. You've got Emirates. You've got Etihad just jumping in. Um, you've got Japan Airlines. You've got Korean Air. You've got Qatar Airways. Um, you know, you got Turkish Airlines to, to to Istanbul. Like you, Boston. In the time that I lived there, from 2015 to 2022, um, you know, really went from arguably a backwater amongst kind of the big U.S. carrier U.S. airports to like one of the best connected airports in the post-pandemic era, which is really interesting. It's also very much benefited from the. Airbus A321, uh, which has enabled SAS and Aer Lingus and TAP Air Portugal to be able to to use that. Uh, I want to hone in on the connection opportunities on the Boston end, because, or at least on the Abu Dhabi end, because um, I compare the flight to Etihad's Chicago flight, which I know arrives early in the morning and actually departs mid-afternoon. Actually, no, or it's still late morning, rather. Um, so I don't have access to the connections out of Abu Dhabi, but I know that the Boston flight will kind of similarly follow a time channel where it arrives in Boston in the early mornings, but then departs in like the early afternoon, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm just pulling up the schedule now. Um, uh, yeah, don't you, don't you... Uh. Don't you hate when a, a a news story doesn't include the flight schedule for a newly launched flight? Okay, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I here on AirwaysMag.com, always the best place to get your news. Uh, 3.10 a.m. departure from Abu Dhabi, 8.55 a.m. arrival. 3.55 p.m. departure from Boston to Abu Dhabi, arriving the next day at 12 p.m. So, I mean, just looking looking at Abu Dhabi, um, I'm, I'm eyeballing this, so, you know, it's, it's not going to be perfect. But I see a 2.20 p.m. departure to Ahmedabad. Um, so that's a connection that you can make. I see a four-ish hour connection to Bahrain, two hours to Bengaluru. Um, I see Chennai. It's a lot of India, right? Um, seeing Delhi. 
I see Doha as very doable. A lot of the Europe stuff is early morning, so leaving in the same block as Boston, but that's not the right traffic flow anyway. I see Hyderabad, Islamabad. I see Karachi, Kochi in India, Kuwait City. Yeah, so it's a lot of Middle East and India, really. If you, if you Anything in Asia? Like, you know, China or Southeast Asia? Um, there's some longer connections, so you can, you know, a lot of the China and East Asia flying leaves in the in the late evening, so it'll be you know a 10, 12 hour connection, um, maybe like a stopover in Abu Dhabi kind of vibe. Uh, you've got Bangkok at ten fifty p.m., Beijing at nine p.m. It's not the, it's not the most efficient connection um, to East Asia, but you do have you do have opportunities to go to you know to J- uh, Jakarta as I guess three a.m. So that's a really long connection. You've got uh, Kuala Lumpur eleven p.m., Lahore eleven ten p.m. Um, Mumbai, uh, Muscat, Phuket, again, late evening, Riyadh, Seoul, late evening, Singapore, late evening, Tokyo, late evening. So it's a lot, it's a lot of late evening stuff. Um, so it'll be a longer connection to and from East Asia, which actually maybe surprises me a little bit, right? Because they've already got a long layover in Boston, right? 8.55 a.m. arrival, 3.55 p.m. departure. Why not? book it as more of an evening departure get in it well i guess it's, it's to protect the india some of the india connections but that that's 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 interesting to observe they may also just not have the terminal space in boston at that hour that rush hour to fly um you know where it would leave from terminal e in boston i think they just may not have well, to get at, at abu dhabi is pre-cleared for us so in theory they could operate from anywhere I think they'll end up in terminal because I don't think there's wide body gates anywhere except the A. Um, so unless they want to make nice with Delta, I don't think they could operate from anywhere else. But because Abu Dhabi has pre-clearance, I think in theory they can operate um, to any of the terminals. Well, so, right. What I'm saying is, is that E might not have any capacity at the desired t- uh, times, like in that later time channel. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. The, that late afternoon in E is is pretty wild to observe, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You literally have... Like Swiss, Air France, Lufthansa, British Airways, the Portuguese, uh, three, you know, SATA and TAP, SAS, you have Virgin Atlantic, you've got many. Um, and then, of course, the Middle East Airlines. So don't forget, yeah, well, no, don't forget the level. Um, I'm just going off the top of my head. I think Royal Air Maroc had a flight to Boston. I don't know if they've resumed it. And I believe Austrian Airlines announced Boston. May not ever like a lot of stuff pre and post pandemic is a little fuzzy to me. So, but yeah, good for Boston landing at the odd. Well, as a sidebar, Boston is not my favorite place. And so, like, I know you're supposed to root for your hometown airport. And I guess when you live there, you will you want it to do well. But um, eh, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't had a horrible experience at Logan the times I've been through it. Um, well, I think the, air, the airport is is fine as a departing airport. Uh, I The arriving experience is, is pretty brutal, though. Like, I, I just flew in there in June for a conference, and I think I waited 45 minutes for the rental car shuttle to show up, at which point I booked myself an Uber to the rental car center from, you know, Logan Airport because that was literally faster than trying to wait for the rental car shuttle. And as I was pulling out, I, I met with someone, or I, I saw someone who, who I was waiting with at the, at, the, at the terminal, 
and and they were just making their way into the rental car center as I was leaving with my car. So um, Boston is very much not a great arriving experience. Um, you can't beat proximity though. It was, I think, 15 minutes regardless of where I live in the Boston area to get to and from Logan Airport um, at off hours, so. Okay, so it's time for our trivia. Um, but we have to see what happened last week. Uh, take the answers we have. I still have no clue. I have no answer. I yeah, throw and has some. As a reminder, I made uh, several allusions to long haul routes from North America, uh, ultra long haul routes that uh, have been around. Uh, you know, some have started and stopped, and we're talking for longer than twenty years. And I had made some references to United flying from New York JFK to Hong Kong. Um, it may not have been explicitly stated in the podcast, but um, that year was 2001. And I said, also that same year, United announced a flight from Chicago to Delhi uh, in 2001, but never flew in. There was one more airline that flew or that announced it would fly between two points and never operated it because of 9-11. And that airline did eventually fly that route for a brief period of time. And the airline was Air Canada, and the route is Vancouver to Delhi. So, wow. in okay. early 2001, Air Canada announced it would fly from Vancouver to Delhi using an Airbus A340. It might have been a 200 or a 500, I can't remember which one. And then never operated it. And then when Air Canada did fly nonstop to India, it always did it from Toronto first. And then it started the Vancouver-Delhi flight sometime in like 2016. Uh, very successful. I ended up flying it in early 2020. Um, and it's been canned due to COVID slash uh, Russia situation. So that was it. I, I think Vinay's guess was like Vancouver to Saigon or something like that. No, I think Vancouver or Bangkok... Okay, might have been Vancouver, Bangkok. Yeah, that's um, something we got. So I, I actually was not that far off then. No, not at all. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, nice. So I think it's my turn again to take on the trivia question because Halloween dropped the ball and and didn't didn't come prepared with one. So I'm gonna give you guys a one that's easy to guess with context because I feel like our first two have been like really hard. Let's do an easy one this week. So I'm gonna ask you guys to name the top. 10 busiest airports in Africa in 2022 um, and bonus points if you can do it in order top 10 in Africa okay yes words um, M- may- maybe first. if you want to take a second write it down and, and then you can read it out so you guys can both go off the top of my head. okay go for so it I'm gonna go Johannesburg followed by Addis Ababa Followed by Cape Town or Cairo, followed by Nairobi, followed by actually fourth would be Lagos, fifth would be Cape Town, sixth would be Nairobi, seventh would be Casablanca, eighth would be uh, Luanda, Angola, ninth would be. Dar es Salaam, Tanzania? No, maybe it would be... What is Entebbe? Entebbe. Um, and then 10th would be... 
Accra? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying anything. I'm just, I'm just listening to your, your answers here. Okay. How, howling? Any, any differences or distinctions? Any airport do you think that that Rohan uh, missed on? Uh, maybe I would put Cape Town first, then Johannesburg and Cairo, and I don't know. You didn't mention Kilimanjaro. That airport's nice, but I don't know. I have no idea. Cape Town's in my first. Like my top three, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Cairo. Okay. Well, um, what I will tell you is that Rohan Rohan gave me the full top ten list. You, you you gave it you gave it an honest effort. I thought you were gonna for, forget Casablanca there for a second. I'm not gonna reveal Casablanca. the answers, but I will tell you that you have um, some incorrect ordering, and then you also have three airports that you mentioned that are actually not in the top ten, and you're missing three. So you can hold that in your head for the next time we record. You gave it a really right. Is this inclusive of the Canary Islands? No, not including Canary Islands. Um, though that would be a hilarious way to get one over Rogers. But no, not including the Canary Islands. Not including okay. like African Spain or whatever. Um, this is just within the continent of Africa, African countries. Did you mention King King Shaka? Durban. Kinshasa, Kinshasa pretty smaller. Small airport. It's a, it's a smaller. It's a smaller. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I a code, I think. But it's... Yeah. I mean, Ken, Kinshasa is one of the largest cities in the world. No, no. Right. And next to Brazzaville. I mean, that population area is massive. Unfortunately, it's just not Dubai, you know? Yeah, it's not the best. The question is not the best or... Uh, the most popular? No, the best. It, it's uh, the most passenger traffic, right? The, yeah. Okay. The most passenger traffic. Yeah, it's now. Maybe that's not on the list. Okay. Well, that's a question. Uh, so, please, uh, if you want to chime in your answer, we have comments. We have our social uh, media channels. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can send us uh your answers and in Spotify, I think you can actually send us voicemails. So we're looking forward to those. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, along with that, uh, as a reminder, please do leave us a review. I've seen a couple of five-star reviews come in already, which makes me pretty happy, but uh, we need to see more or we're gonna <laughs> throw this this podcast right back onto the cancellation heap. Not really, but you know, it would be really appreciated if you would leave us a, a rating and a review. Um, just tell us what you like about the podcast. Tell us what you hate about the podcast. Tell me I have bad opinions. Don't really care as long as it's a five-star review. And, uh, you know, as a reminder, we've got the core episode that's available, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. But we also have the Plus extension over on Substack. And you're going to have to subscribe over on Substack to the Airways NOTAM if you want access to all of our bonus content, including a very funny dissection of Huntsville Airport's Wikipedia page on today's bonus set. So. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks for listening. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors for supporting the show. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast too, please visit airwaysmag.com slash podcast for more information. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on airwaysmagazine.substat.com or on your preferred platform. If you're a Plus member, Stay tuned to next week's special interview. For everyone else, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Airways Podcast.